Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 through 22. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Um, for uh, just a, a PSA for those of you who are in the back. I know it's a, a really different experience, and so we're going to run this again at 1.30, and so if you want to grab lunch uh, and come back, um, we're going to do it again, and there should be uh, some more room uh, if you want to do that. Uh, welcome uh, to Exilic, whether it's your first time or hundredth time here. Uh, we're so gr- glad that you can come and celebrate Easter uh, with us. Um, if we haven't personally met yet, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, But being a pastor is not the most important thing about me. First and foremost, I am a child of God. Uh, Secondly, I am a husband to Hannah. And thirdly, I'm a girl dad to Logan and Hayden. And the reason why I mention I'm a dad is because the scariest moment of my life uh, was just a few years ago uh, during our staff holiday party. And I gave my oldest daughter, Logan, a cookie with crushed walnuts in it. And if you don't know, my oldest daughter, Logan, is anaphylactic, highly, highly allergic to peanuts and tree nuts. And her dad, (laughs) of all people, gave her this cookie. And Logan took a nibble of this cookie, and within seconds, her lips tripled in size, like the size of a fish. And all of a sudden, her breathing was like, (sighs) and so we jumped into an Uber and went to NYU Langone. Um, I was so on edge. I was like, I almost jumped onto a steering wheel like Liam Neeson and like just took over the car because he was going so slow and there's traffic. and, And I'm in the back seat holding my daughter whose body's like limp. And at one moment, I thought I lost her. Scariest moment of my life. Well, by now, as you all know, uh, almost two weeks ago, uh, there was a shooting in Nashville at Covenant School hosted by Covenant Presbyterian Church. And to be honest with you, uh, with the amount of shootings that take place in our country, I can't even keep track of all the stories. But this particular story hit a little bit closer to home because the church uh, is actually a church in our denomination, the PCA. And so I actually have friends that know the pastor, the senior pastor there, Chad Scruggs, who didn't almost lose his daughter, but who actually lost his nine-year-old daughter, Hallie, in addition to eight other members of his spiritual family. Now, there isn't a lot that we know that Pastor Chad has said uh, in public, uh, but there are a couple things that he has said to the media and uh, during his daughter's eulogy. And I just want to read a couple of those excerpts for us. 
And this is what he says. Through tears, we trust that she, Hallie, is in the arms of Jesus, who will raise her to life once again. I will never walk my little girl down the aisle, but she is already in the presence of the perfect bridegroom. Now, as Christians, uh, we are just like everyone else. Uh, we grieve, just like everyone else. The difference, however, is as Christians, we do not grieve as those without hope. Rather, we grieve as those with a sense of hope. And the reason for that is because of Easter. If Jesus rose again from the dead, if he really, really did that, you know what that means? He has more power than any fictional superpower or villain, whether it's Thanos or Thor or Captain Marvel, except for the fact that he's not fictional. He's actually real. And if, he, if what he did by dying and rising again really took place in history, you know what that means? It changes the course of our future destiny as well. And not just the future generally, but it changes your future in particular, your future destiny. Now, all reputable scholars, whether they're Christian or not, all reputable scholars agree that Jesus really lived and died. What they disagree on, however, is not whether he lived and died, but whether he really died and lived, the resurrection. So there's a few different ways that we can uh, approach the, you know, the message of Easter. We could take it from like a historical, literary, scholarly approach. So we can talk about the eyewitness accounts, and if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I want to refer you to um, Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So we can take a look at all the different eyewitness accounts and examine them. We could uh, take a look at it from a more historical perspective. We can take a look at extra-biblical resources outside of the Bible that were not written by Christians, but rather skeptics, such as the first century Jewish secular historian Josephus, who talks about the resurrection. So we can take a, take a look at that. We can also just take a look at it from just like a purely you know, logical perspective. Like how do we account for the fact that this poor, homeless man that uh, did not have the money of Bill Gates, did not have the power of a president, did not go to an Ivy League school, didn't even write a book, how do we account for how this man that was totally powerless how was he able to start the most revolutionary movement in history? So much so that time itself revolves around his birth. How do we know it's 2023? It's because it's been 2023 years since the birth of Jesus. So how do we account for how this man of all people, who was born in the back slums of Bethlehem, was able to start the most revolutionary movement in all of history? How do we account for that? So we could take a look at it from that lens, but I'm not gonna do any of those things. Rather, I want us to take a look at the Easter story from a different angle. Not whether Easter really happened or not, but I wanna take a look at it from this angle. What if the Easter story isn't true? What if it never happened, then what? 
What are the implications for that? Because that is what the Apostle Paul is arguing here in 1 Corinthians 15, his magnum opus on the resurrection. So let me just read a few verses for us. And in verse 17 and 19, the Apostle Paul writes this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now the Apostle Paul says four things if Christ has not been resurrected. Number one, our faith is futile or pointless. Number two, we're still stuck in our sins. Number three, the dead are lost. And number four, we are to be most pitied. And what I want to do really quickly for our time this afternoon is to just unpack these four things. And number one and number two actually go hand in hand together. Uh, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile or pointless because we're still stuck in our sins. Let me just flesh this out for us uh, for a moment. So um, my 10-year anniversary is coming up in just two months. And um, when I married Hannah, I had zero dollars in debt. She, on the other hand, had almost $100,000 in debt, courtesy of NYU, thank you very much. <laughs> now, something interesting happens when you get married. Her debt <laughs> all of a sudden becomes my debt. Right? So all of a sudden, now I have $100,000 in debt. Now, I don't think that's the reason why she married me, although you have to ask her. Um, but something similar happens when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. Our debt now becomes his debt. Our sins now become his sins, and he's happy and glad to take on our sins for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says this, God made him who had no sin or no debt to be sin for us, so that in him we might become debt-free or we might become the righteousness of God. So that, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians. However, in 1 Corinthians 15, which is what we're looking at, he takes this argument one step further and he says this, it's not enough for Jesus just to die for our sins. It's not enough. Because if he hasn't resurrected from the dead, guess what? We're still stuck in our sins. It's not enough for him just to die for it. He has to rise again from the dead. And the reason why the Apostle Paul is making this logic is because we respectfully disagree with King Mufasa. You know, The Lion King is one of my favorite movies. And if you've ever seen the movie before, you know that King Mufasa tells his young son Simba, death is just a natural part of the circle of life. In Christian theology, however, death is not a natural part of the circle of life. Death is not natural, it's unnatural. This is not the way that things are supposed to be. And so for Mufasa, because death is natural, death is also amoral, it's morally neutral. But in Christian theology, what the Bible says is that because death is unnatural, it is not amoral, but it is immoral. Death is evil. 
Death is the result and consequence of sins. And therefore, if Jesus died for our sins but doesn't rise from the dead, what that means is that death gets the last word. Sin gets the last word. Evil actually gets the last word. So it doesn't matter if he died, if he didn't rise again from the dead as well. Otherwise, we are still stuck in our sins and our faith is pointless. Now, as a pastor, one of the hardest challenges for me doing these like TED Talks every Sunday is trying to convince New Yorkers, modern, Western, scientific, you know, uh, secular, you know, people. How do I convince people that they're actually not as good as they think they are? And the reason why it's so important to do that is because the good news or gospel, the good news is not good news unless you first understand the bad news first. If you can't understand the bad news, the good news is not good, it's just news. So we have to first understand the bad news before we understand the good news. And the bad news is that we are worse than we think we are. But how do I convince people that they are far worse than they think we are when we are all children of the Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said that we're all born pure and as a clean slate, and it's society that corrupts us. But deep down inside, I'm absolutely and totally pure. Right? We're all children of, of uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And so this is why we use language like, I'm a good person. I'm not a bad person. In Christian theology, however, uh, the Bible says that we are far worse than we, we think we are. So I just want to do a thought experiment with us for a moment. I want you to imagine that Google has invented a tiny chip that can be planted in your brain. And this chip records all of your thoughts. Not just like some of them, but all of them. And if you've been here for a few months, we've been doing a series called Winning Your Thought Wars. And you know that we have on average about 6,000 thoughts a day. Most are passing thoughts, like what do I want to eat for lunch? But some are positive, but there's a good number that are also negative. And I want you to imagine a world where this chip records all of your negative thoughts and blasts it on the internet, on Twitter, for everyone to see. If such a chip existed, and was blasted for everyone to see with all of your thoughts, you would be canceled so fast. You would not make it one week, let alone one year. And the reason for that is because there is something very beautiful about humanity because we are made in the image of God. We're not made in the image of a chimp. So there's something very beautiful about humanity. But there is also something very deeply damaged and broken, and dare I say, even evil about humanity as well, deep down in our core. And the salvation schema that secularism and religion give to us is the moral scale. If you just do more good things than bad things, then you can atone for your sins, and you're not going to be reincarnated a rat. You'll get nirvana, you'll get paradise, or whatever it might be. And that, so that's the way to atone for all the stuff that you've done in the past. But in Christianity, you're so bad, you can't atone for your sins. You're far worse than you even think you are. So what we really need is a Savior to come to atone for our sins. So the bad news is that we're far worse than we think we are, but the good news is, is that we're far more loved than we think we are as well. And this is why Jesus is called our Savior because he came to atone for our sins. And it's interesting to me that out of all people that understood the gospel, it was not Jesus' friends, but it was actually his opponents. Because over and over, there are three reasons in the gospels why the opponents of Jesus wanted to kill him. 
Number one, this man loves sinners. He was always spending time with sinners. Number two, he healed on the Sabbath. Number three, he claimed to be the Son of God. And you know what? Jesus still claims those three things today. He loves sinners like you and me, no matter what we have done. He's still a healer, the great physician, and he still claims to be the Son of God. And because of him, all of our sins, past, present, and future, the sins that we know about and regret, but even the sins that you don't know about because you're far worse than you think you are, all of that is atoned for and forgiven because of what he has done. He who knew no sin became sin for us. But if the resurrection did not happen, our faith is futile and we're still stuck in our sins. But not only that, in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost forever. Now, uh, I'm, I'm an NBA junkie and uh, it's almost playoff season. And one of my favorite coaches is the Phoenix Suns head coach, Monty Williams. Okay, and all due respect to the Knicks and Nets fans, they're probably gonna win. Uh, but he's one of my favorite coaches. And a few years ago in February 2016, Monty's wife was uh, driving and she was in a severe car accident and she died. And everyone kept saying, Monty, I'm sorry for your loss. Monty, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry for your loss. And everyone kept saying, I'm sorry for your loss. And so when it was time to give the eulogy, Monty came up and he said, you know, when you lose something, you don't know where it is anymore. Like you lose your keys, you lose your phone. But he said, you know, I didn't lose my wife. I didn't lose her. I know exactly where she is. She's in heaven. And the reason why he was able to say that was because of his faith, which is very compatible. But you know what's not as compatible? When we as modern, sophisticated, you know, secular New Yorkers who have a Darwinian framework, who are materialistic and, and naturalistic, what's not compatible is when we say things after someone dies, we say things like, oh, I know that they're in a better place or, oh, I know that they're looking down on me, despite the fact that it is totally incompatible with your own worldview. There is no better place. There's only six feet of dirt. And yet the resurrection story continues to leak out of us. And so the question is, why do we say such things when it is totally incompatible with our own worldview? And the Oxford Don C.S. Lewis would say is that maybe it's because your desires point to a reality. Just like you have a desire for food, it points to food that can quench that desire. You have a desire for drink because you're thirsty. There's such a thing as water that can quench your, your thirst. You're sleepy. There's such a thing as sleep that can quench your, your sleepiness. And what Lewis would say is, if we have this desire to live forever and not die, that there is more to life than just this, Maybe these desires actually point to something that can quench those desires. Maybe it's really, really pointing to a reality. But if Christ has not been raised, then we're all lost forever. And he goes on in verse 19 
And lastly, by saying, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And when you pity someone, you feel sorry for them. And what he's saying here is if Jesus hasn't risen, we should feel sorry for ourselves. The uh, Arguably the most famous atheist alive today, the biologist Richard uh, Dawkins at Oxford, in his book, Unweaving the Rainbow, Dawkins has a different take on death. And he says this, we privilege few who won the lottery of birth against all odds. How dare we whine at our inevitable return to that prior state from which the vast majority have never stirred. And what Dawkins is saying here is, listen, why are you complaining that you're going to die? You should be thankful that you even got to live the 50, 60 years of your life. You're nothing more than a clump of cells that have emerged out of this primordial soup, and you got to live. Like, you should just be thankful. Why are you whining? But the Easter story tells a very different story and has a very different take on death. And in verse 20 to 22, the Apostle Paul writes this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, I realize that we're all, you know, urbanites here. And so the, the word first fruits doesn't really mean a lot to us because it's agrarian farming language. But it's the idea that, you know, like fruits like are in season, strawberries, watermelons. It's this idea that like the first one that you pluck, if it's like in season or ripe, you know that there's going to be a second fruit to come, a third fruit to come, and a fourth fruit to come. Hundreds of fruit to come. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ risen from the dead is the first taste, the first of the second to come, the third to come, the fourth to come. And so as a result of him rising from the dead, you're going to rise from the dead. 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 All of us are going to rise from the dead because he is the first fruit of many more to come. And that is great news to all of us. That's great news to me, too. I mentioned before that in a couple months, it's going to be my 10-year uh, anniversary. Uh, but in a couple months, it's my birthday as well. And I am turning 44 years old. You know, it's crazy. When our church first started, I was just, I was just 35 years old. And now I'm soon turning 44 years old. And it's interesting um, because, you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you know what you talk about the most? It's like career, dating, marriage. Like that's the stuff that you talk about the most, right, in your 20s and 30s. You know what you talk about in your 40s? Colonoscopies. <laughs> it's like, hey, bro, did you get your colonoscopy yet? You're almost 45. Like, this is the stuff that we talk about. And the reason for that is because our bodies, they are breaking down, are they not? My, last year, I, this is a true story, last year my wife uh, gifted me something called Vigamore. It's like liquid Rogaine. So she's afraid that I'm turning into Stephen A. Smith, and so she's like, every night I want you to put some of this liquid into your hair. And I remember we were traveling once at an, at an Airbnb, and the bathroom had no counter space. <laughs> 
And so I put this little bottle on the edge of the sink, because that was the only space that we had. And it's, it's not cheap. It's like pretty, pretty expensive. And the bottle was open, and I accidentally put it on the edge of the sink, and so it spilled into the sink, and like half of it is spilling out. And I'm like, no! I'm like shampooing <laughs> like all over my forehead as much as possible, and I'm like, I can't believe this is my life now. Like, when did this, when did this happen to me? And it's a humorous story, but, <laughs> but do not pity me. <laughs> do not pity Hallie Scruggs. Do not pity the eight other people that died in Asheville. Mourn for them. Grieve for them. But as Christians, we do not grieve as those without hope. We grieve as those with hope because of the resurrection from the dead. Peter Kraft, the uh, philosophy professor at Boston College, once said, crying, progress as you die, is not going to save you. But there is one who can. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Without Jesus, we approach life with the expectation of death. But with Jesus, we approach death with the expectation of life. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not say, I am finished. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. Death is finished. Your sins are finished because of the work that I have done for you. Now, I realize, um, I know that there are a ton of people here, and there's a good number of you that don't identify yourself as Christian. I want you to, first of all, say thank you so much for coming. Okay? And I, I know that, you know, even in my own personal conversations that I've had, that whenever we talk about Christianity, it always bends towards things like sexuality and gender and abortion and, and other political issues as well. And those are all important topics and all important questions that we should not dodge. But what I usually tell my skeptical friends is this, those are important things, but before we talk about those things, let's first talk about the resurrection. Because this is the heart of our faith, and if he didn't rise from, from the dead, our faith is futile. We don't have to talk about all this other stuff that's important. But if he did rise again from the dead, the way that we look at all of these different things, and by the way, Christianity is more nuanced than you think, the way that we look at all of these things is shaped through his lens, because he is God. Now, uh, I mentioned that uh, I didn't take necessarily a historical, literary, scholarly approach, uh, but there is a very small book that does. It's called Is Easter Unbelievable? That's written by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's about 52, 54 pages. I read this under two hours. And so for those of you who do not identify as a Christian and you're interested in taking a deeper dive into the resurrection and you're a thinker, uh, there are two high boys in the back near the vestibule. If you're not a Christian, this is our gift to you before you leave. And if you are a Christian, you can go on Amazon <laughs> for $2.99 on Kindle, and you can purchase this book. Okay, so make sure you grab this uh, on the way out. My friends, he is risen. He is not here. 
That's great hope for all of us. Let's pray. Lord, um, I, think, I think sometimes when we're young, we think that we're totally invincible. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, while we all know the date of our birth, we don't know the date of our death. But we don't have to live in fear. Because on this day, 2,000 years ago, that tomb was empty. And it is a glimpse of our own resurrection. Life is hard. Life is painful. Life is thorny. But our stories don't end with a tragedy, but it ends with the most glorious story of all, a resurrection. And for that, we praise you and we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen.